Hello and welcome to this panel didactic recording for Project ECHO, Adolescent Mental Health ECHO Network. This is the University of Melbourne, Department of General Practice, ECHO Hub. And in session three, we asked the question, could this be a neurodevelopmental disorder? Our panellist for this session is Associate Professor Sandra Radovini, Child and Adolescent Psychiatrist, Clinician at Origin and Academic at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Melbourne. Okay, everyone. So we're going to talk a little about neurodevelopmental disorders. It's a really big topic. So there's a, a few maybe tips, a few thoughts to add to um, your knowledge and skills already. Uh, understanding comorbidities is a really big part uh, of neurodevelopmental disorders, some red flags and maybe some things to think about in regards to assessment and management. Um, of all the things that I'm going to uh, show you today, perhaps this is the most important slide in my view, that we need really to think about um, comorbidity co-occurring disorders in this group. Often they present with medical or mental health problems. That's our lens through which we meet young people. But we do indeed need to think about the overlay of trauma, as we spoke about last week, the potential for intellectual disability that may or may not be known about, and indeed the autism spectrum disorder. Please try and hold this overlapping Venn diagram when you see young people, because rarely is it just one thing going on. And really, um, uh, this is also a reminder for me, beware the lens through which you view things. At the moment, I'm working in an ASD team, and I've got to be careful that I don't see ASD everywhere, uh, which it feels like I do. Now, neurodevelopmental disorders um, within a school setting, these are the ones that will, uh, no doubt, you will have met young people with ASD, with ADHD, with intellectual disability. Speech and language disorders are a bit harder to spot and specific learning disorders also quite hard to spot without actual assessment. Um, and uh, when we think about ADHD uh, and learning disorders and ID, really we're we're thinking about young people who seem bright enough, but somehow their academic performance um, doesn't match or they're just not keeping up, they're, they're, they're not where that people think they ought to be. And so we begin to kind of ask the question of what's impacting on this young person's learning? Is it trauma? Is it stressors? Is it mental health difficulties? And then we begin to ask the question, well, could it be a specific learning disorder or intellectual disability or ADHD. And in order to tease these things out, we usually need the help of actually formal cognitive assessments and speech and language assessments. We can't just, you know, pick these things out. Um, the other way that these young people present is, of course, the disruptive student. Now, most Young people with ADHD have often been picked up before secondary school because it is the hyperactivity that draws attention and um, uh, when these young people are in primary school. But they are the kids who interrupt, who don't follow instructions, who can't sit still, who are impulsive. Sometimes um, we do wonder about ADHD again in secondary school. And often these are the kids potentially with 
from disadvantaged backgrounds or disrupted learning or lots of moves where things may have been um, suggested but actually not followed up. And, and so, again, we're, we're looking at referring those young people. I, in talking about ASD, there has been an enormous change in my career from something that was considered a low prevalence disorder. When I started as a psychiatrist, I heard about autism and I thought, I'm never going to have to worry about that. You know, ignore that. That's for some specialist clinic somewhere. And of course, from there, it has become a high prevalence disorder. And as much as one in 50, one in 70, potentially. And to give you a little bit of an idea of age groups and over time, um, have a look at that late primary school, early adolescence, late adolescence, that light blue line, these are the kids that we are seeing and you are seeing in a school context. Um, and then indeed, even in young adulthood. Um, and the 25 plus is the new emerging that you may see in your practices outside of the school setting of really what's being called the lost generation. The people with ASD who have not been diagnosed and or who have been misdiagnosed. Now, why is it important to recognise these conditions? Because they have an enormous impact. They are lifelong conditions and they impact on learning, on relationships, much higher risks in terms of mental health and help, and also help seeking for these young people. So really comorbidity is the rule. If you find one neurodevelopmental disorder, look for more. If you have a mental health problem in a young person that just doesn't quite fit, think neurodevelopmental disorder. And in secondary schools, you'll have the two groups, the known group and the unknown group. And the unknown group will present in schools with learning difficulties, behavioural difficulties, school refusal, suicidal ideation or self-harming behaviour and sometimes gender dysphoria. And what we're seeing is these young people come to attention when the challenges academically, socially really exceeds their capacity to manage. So what kind of red flags? Because they're lifelong disorders, we're trying to establish a longitudinal history. And when you've got the young person in front of you, what is it that you can ask them? You can ask them about, well, did they need help in primary school? Did they repeat grades? Did they get into trouble? Did they struggle with schoolwork? Do they struggle with feelings, sort of understanding feelings or keeping or making friendships and the school refusal? Did they miss out? Did they not want to go to school? And for the young people for whom that's not been so difficult in primary school, it's often because there's been a lot of scaffolding from parents and from teachers and a primary school environment that where they managed and then the secondary school environment, that big, big transition to big schools, lots of changes, lots of classrooms, lots of subjects, and the wheels fall off uh, in about sometimes year seven goes okay and year eight does not. And the other set of questions are around, did they see doctors? Did they see a paediatrician, a speech therapist, a counsellor in their primary school years? 
The things around ASD uh, to that might um, give us some clues are young people who are able to say, I've always felt different or other people have thought I'm odd or I'm weird. And it is in all of these domains that we've already touched upon. The child who may only ever have had one friend or the converse. Sometimes they're listing a whole pile of friends and you realise that they seem to be listing every child in the class. The young person who has had meltdowns, who's gotten into trouble at school a lot and paying attention to their verbal and nonverbal communication with you um, in your consulting rooms, they are literal. They can be extremely blunt and to the point from their perspective being factual because that's usually they're just telling it like it is and you have this sort of lack of appreciation of humour, a lack of what is a reciprocal um, conversation. One young person said to me, well, if conversation's like a tennis match, all I can do is hold a racket. Like I, you know, no ability to bat it back with the next bit of conversation back to you. And nonverbal can be quite striking if you're tuned in and looking for it. You know, the lack of vocal intonation, the lack of facial expression, the really limited range of facial expressions that sometimes has you wondering, well, is this young person depressed? And in fact, you realise there's nothing much there. It's pretty blank. The other area to inquire about is the restrictive interests and activities. And here we're looking at really intense interests, almost to the exclusion of anything else. And sometimes they're odd interests and the young person has amassed an enormous amount of knowledge if you continue asking questions and, and they might share with you about what they know. A big area is sensory sensitivities. Um, what, what are things that are difficult for them sensory? Noise, lights, um, the feeling of clothes, food. They're often described as fussy eaters, very particular with their clothing. Um, and this will have been, again, if it's there, it's lifelong. There is, well, I've already said, the difficulty with change and transitions. So, of course, asking about that, asking about the starting school, the move from primary to secondary school, or a young person's uh, uh, preference for sameness and routines. And just, a, you know, a note of caution, eye contact is a very bad predictor of ASD. People talk about that a lot, of being gaze avoidant. Some young people are not. Some young people learn to look at people because it's what's expected. Um, ASD in women and girls uh, is a particular area to note it is easily missed and misdiagnosed. And I'm seeing a lot of young women at Origin now where the diagnosis is borderline personality disorder is how they come in the door and some of them don't have that. They have ASD. They're missed because they're better able to mimic um, other uh, young people, mimic socially, um, and their interests are not necessarily odd. Uh, at first glance, they their interest is the same as other young girls, but the intensity of it um, 
is different or the extent that, you know, when other young girls have left something behind and and developmentally speaking, the person with ASD will still be interested in that thing. Um, Women and young girls and, and young women with ASD are indeed more likely to die by suicide than their non-ASD peers. It's a big deal. Their their self-harm, suicidal ideation and the risk of suicide is there. And we haven't probably really appreciated that it is much more so than the neurotypical population and much greater rates of mental health difficulties and conversely, less help-seeking, less appropriate treatment, less access. And when we're moving more to an adult population or a late, younger, even young adult population, in those that do not have an intellectual disability, then you're seeing mental health as the biggest problem. And as you've got a couple of quotes there, I don't want to be non-autistic. I just wish I wasn't anxious and distressed all the time. Or another quote, anxiety seems like a logical response to a world where the rules are intuitive to everyone but you. Now, let's talk a little bit about assessments. What's the role for you in primary care uh, in what are usually complex presentations, complex mental health difficulties, sometimes significant behaviours of concern, and it's really thinking about could it be ASD and thinking about where might this young person be referred to understand that and what sort of help do they need? So collateral information is what's needed from family, from primary schools, from other health providers and asking about have previous cognitive or language tests been done and requesting them to have an actual look at them. And you need this longitudinal history uh, which really requires you to um, speak to a parent uh, uh, primarily. Sometimes there are some screeners. The social responsiveness scale is a good one, but you have to pay for it. And there are parent and teacher uh, rating um, scales in that. And I think I've given Bianca some other ones that she'll put in the resources. And back to comorbidities, comorbidities. So ASD, often comorbid with other neurodevelopmental disorders or ADHD and ASD, ASD and ID, um, ADHD and learning difficulties. Mental health problems, absolutely. Anxiety, depression. And one of the things to perhaps ask about is, does this young person feel lonely? And, you know, what's their felt experience? Are they okay with being alone or not? Because it is that loneliness uh, associated with social isolation that is the risk factor for depression. The emotional regulation, dysregulation, sorry, you will usually hear about in terms of the school setting and difficulties that arise and the risk-taking behaviours that we always need to assess and we need to think about the actual risk at that at that particular moment in time. Now, Bianca, I think you are going to talk about some of the um, school resources. So I just wanted to kind of uh, navigate our pathways through schools because, of course, de- 
um, Department of Education and Training through the regions, so debt regions, uh, do operate as a, in a sense a service platform. So in terms of how do we understand that? Well, look, um, they do offer student support services and the Triple S is what you might hear them described as. They write the funding applications, their key responsibilities, they're writing the funding applications for the program for students with disabilities, or you'll hear it referred to as PSD. Um, generally ID and ASD and, and also some kids with certain needs, particularly severe behaviours, one that um, might often come up. Um, so they need to write programs for kids with severe behaviour and sometimes they might refer them to our, our clinic um, because they do need to be uh, have vision and hearing testing and assessment for ADHD. Of course, that's something that we need to refer out to PEDS, but we can organise that vision and hearing testing. Um, of course, they have to respond in the case of critical incidents. So where there's been, uh, you know, a severe kind of trauma within the school, they're the psychologist and team that do provide that initial uh, um, response. Now, they meet regularly and they have a key contact that, from either, either a speech therapist, social worker or psychologist that meets regularly with the student leadership and student wellbeing team. And you might hear these meetings being described as SSG meetings, student support group meetings. And so that's when they might discuss the needs of a particular um, client, that SS person, SSS person will then take that back to the group, think about what types of things they might be able to offer and then they provide a, a more formal assessment. Um, what they can do is they often start with a speech and language assessment to assess working memory, receptive and expressive language. And they may, from there, get enough information that um, determines whether they'll go on to perform a cognitive assessment. It does take trauma and disadvantage into account. So it's not just for those specific learning disorders. Um, so I think that's really interesting. And they also can provide that WISC assessment you've probably heard of. Um, I guess the key piece there is that they are there, um, funded by the Department of Education and Training to help provide support that might enable tailored learning packages. So they're not kind of there for us to kind of get our, you know, health needs met, although I guess we would all think that education and health overlap. But it is just something about that system that our way to enter into their uh, resources that we might um, want to access to help tailor schooling is through often the student wellbeing team. So we won't make special referrals. We've been kind of um, directed to access some of these things through student wellbeing. So that would uh, require us to get student permission to speak to student wellbeing to make those recommendations. Thanks. And when we're uh, some thoughts around management, when in this group, we need to really be aware of our own language and be able to adapt how we use language. And here we need to think about language that is direct, language where you give, you know, small, short sentences, being literal, sometimes using diagrams or other visual supports. Try very hard not to use colloquialisms, not to use metaphors because they are a bit confusing for, for this group. Um, the other uh, thing that is important in, in the school environment is indeed the actual physical environment. Uh, what is the best kind of physical environment that will support learning for this um, group of students? And it's often relatively easy to modify the environment a bit to make things quite a bit easier for this group, whether it is for the young person with ADHD being up the front of the class, less distracted by the people around them, for the young person with ASD and sensory sensitivities, what is it that can be done? Noise cancelling headphones have been fantastic for this group. And likewise, sometimes being able to have breaks from the sensory overload of the classroom to be able to step out to another spot in the school, 
to allow the young person to just kind of calm down a little from all that um, sensory input. CAMS and KIMS across Victoria do ASD assessments and all CAMS and KIMS have an ASD coordinator, uh, a, a role. So wherever you are in the state, that person can be a very useful resource to be able to tell you what's in your local area. Um, and aside from CAMS and KIMS, what other options might there be for families who are looking to perhaps pursue a formal diagnosis, which I actually think is a really important thing to get sorted if that query arises. And so that concludes the panel didactic recording for Project ECHO Adolescent Mental Health Series Session 3. Project ECHO Adolescent Mental Health Series is brought to you by the Department of General Practice at the University of Melbourne and we wish to thank Associate Professor Sandra Radovini and the Department of Psychiatry for her contribution. This Project ECHO Series is supported by the Victorian Government as part of the Doctors and Secondary Schools Clinical Training Program and we wish to acknowledge the support of the Victorian Government in the production of this podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us again.